Hello, you are listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Shock Aber with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malas with Restore or Retreat. And here we are, Simone. We are rushing toward Labor Day. August is coming and going, and I cannot believe it. But I hope you're staying cool down there. Um, no. And <laughs> no. <laughs> staying inside, maybe, is the better way to phrase that. But how are things going for you? It's been a while since we've chatted. I know. I know. I actually missed the last one. Um, I was absent for school that day. And so you were able to take on uh, T. Bradley. So glad that we were able to have him on the show and excited for um, our guest today. Um, but yeah, I mean, talk about streaming towards Labor Day. I can't tell if I'm like falling headfirst or (laughs) going to ram into Labor Day headfirst. Summer's just flown by. And shock, there is no slowdown in coastal work. We say this all the time. We're just waiting for the break, but there is none. And and so a lot of ways that's good, but um, also always a very active hurricane season. And so um, always have our eye towards that as well. Of course, yeah, and I can definitely emphasize empathize on the um, you know lack of uh, not slowing down, right? Things are still busy, but you know we have been, of course, tracking the tropics and and you know thinking about folks in Mexico who were recently impacted, as well as in New England. Um, you know, we certainly don't want any storms to come to Louisiana, but we don't want them to go anywhere else either. So even though it is predicted to be a more above average season, and we're, we're actually in and heading into the, the most um, active part of the season, hoping that things can stay relatively calm, especially after last year. Yeah, and and as everybody down here remembers, we are approaching the Katrina anniversary, and so that always kind of heightens everyone's awareness about so many things that are around us here in coastal Louisiana. I think we'll touch on that topic a, a little bit later with our guest. Yeah, and I'm so excited for our guest today. You know, this is a, a topic um, that I am deeply passionate about. Simone, you know me that. I just find um, photography and visual storytelling to be so powerful, especially for our issue, right? That's why we take people out on boats and and kind of on flyovers to see what's happening firsthand. Of course, not everyone can go out on a boat or on a flyover. So photography is such a powerful way to bring the issue to life and really visualize what we mean when we're talking about coastal land loss, coastal restoration, and so much more. So um, this is a photographer I've followed for a while, has, has done beautiful work and has been featured in the New York Times and elsewhere. But Matthew White is a photographer based in New Orleans. Um, His photography is focused in Southern Louisiana, Florida, and the Gulf Coast. He specializes in real estate, industrial imagery, nature, and aerial shots. And and again, his work has appeared in many places, including the New Orleans Times-Picayune, the Nature Conservancy magazine, and recently the New York Times. So welcome to Delta Dispatches, Matthew. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. I'm glad to be here. Great. Well, we are very much looking forward to discussing your photography and some specific um, features that you know were recently published in different places. But first, tell us a little bit about yourself. You're currently in New Orleans. Um, tell us a little bit about your background and, and what kind of brought you to the world of photography. Well, I was uh, born in upstate New York in uh, the town of Endwell, which is a suburb of Binghamton. And as I got older, I just uh, kept moving further and further south. 
Um, I've lived in Richmond, Virginia, and Athens, Georgia, and I've lived in New Orleans for uh, a little over 18 years now. And um, I think I, have, I I think I just kept moving further and further south because uh, even though I was born in a kind of a cooler climate, I never got used to the cold weather. And so I always sought out warmer spaces, and that actually had a lot to do with um, why I got into photography and um, the kinds of things that I photographed. So, so Matthew, when was the first time you picked up a camera? Um, when I was 15 years old, I got a Canon 35 millimeter camera for my birthday. Um, I had an aunt who was into photography and I was always looking at her camera gear. So somebody suggested that I uh, might like taking up photography. So they got me the camera. And at the same time, um, I had discovered a, a New York photographer named Joel Myrowitz. And uh, he had sort of pioneered the idea of, of color photography um, being art. And he made a lot of famous photographs of Cape Cod. And I saw these photographs when I was um, a young teen, and they just spoke to me. I, I used to go to the bookstore. I couldn't afford to buy it, of course, I didn't, but I would just go to the bookstore and pick the book up and look at it for uh, an hour or so. And I would always go back and do that. And he, I would say Myra Witz was probably the the spark for getting me started in photography. And um, I started just photographing uh, landscapes like he did. Uh, Myra Witz used to be a street photographer, but then he uh, went off to Cape Cod and started doing landscape photography. And so I was inspired by him. And that's why I've always done it. So Matthew, I do want to talk about a recent feature um, in the New York Times that was really a beautiful, poignant piece called Beauty, Serenity, Stillness, an ode to the final miles of the Mississippi River. We'll certainly link to this uh, feature in our, in our episode so people can check it out if you haven't. But um, I have to ask, I'm a little biased, but uh, your the piece really fo focuses on Plaquemines Parish. Um, and, I, and I have long felt that Plaquemines Parish is unique oh, and go. other and <laughs> otherworldly. And as soon as you cross that St. Bernard Parish line and head into Plaquemines Parish, especially on the East Bank, it's just, it is kind of this unique otherworldly place. So tell us a little bit about this feature and why Plaquemines Parish is such uh, a unique and special place to document in photography. Okay. Well, I first learned about Plaquemines Parish um, during my time living in upstate New York, where I had this need to escape the climate. And I, it, there wasn't such a thing at, at the time, but it's looking back on things and talking to others about it. It's, it's most likely that I had sort of undiagnosed uh, seasonal affective disorder um, because uh, Binghamton is one of the 10 rainiest cities in the United States. 
and um, it's cloudy a lot. And for some reason, this had an effect on me. And so I, I sought escape from that by going to the library and taking out books that had photos of warmer places. And one of those places was Louisiana. The library also had um, the full catalog of these real giant-sized USGS quad maps. And so I started looking at the map of Louisiana, and I zeroed in on Plaquemines Parish. And just seeing how remote it is and um, the strange... Uh, shape of it and the names of the places, you know, like Pilot Town and Port Eads. And I started to wonder what these places were like. And and uh, over the years, I discovered there really was not much of a photographic record of Plaquemines Parish other than some historic photos or industrial photos. And so I s- used to imagine myself, you know, pretending I was Joel Myrowitz and going down to Plaquemines Parish and doing landscape photography there. And, and eventually I worked my way further and further south and was finally able to first see Plaquemines Parish around uh, 1999 or 2000 um, when I started making trips down here when I lived in Athens, Georgia. And that's when I started the project. And it, it just, I, I, you might be able to relate to this, but but when you it's like you said, when you cross that parish line and you start getting down river, it it sort of um, it hypnotizes me in a strange sort of way. Um, there's the sensations, the the wind and and there's this kind of salty air and just the the lack of sound and the silence of the place and the minimal landscape, it, it hypnotizes me. It soothes some nerve in my head that has needed to be soothed for a very long time. And it's sort of become this, I guess you could say, uh, a psychological safe place for me. And along with discovering that, I also learned about the history of it and the places and how people lived. And, and it's just become a great fascination for me. And so I've worked on photographing it for 20 years now. Well, now I'm officially homesick. So thank you, Matthew. <laughs> but um, I do have to ask, I mean, I'm so fascinated with, you know, you kind of in the library looking at these imageries, uh, images and these maps of, of a place you'd never been to, right? But we're just fascinated by, and then actually getting there and then kind of having part of your career, but you documenting it. So what was that first trip like to Plaquemines Parish when you actually were on the ground and you were like, I'm here? What Can you tell us about that experience? I, I was kind of elated in a, in a way. I, I, I remember just sort of standing um, way down on Tidewater Road in Venice, which is kind of the end of the line. And, and there was this, this sense of calm, like, like I'm here. And here I am at the end of the river and this, this place that has so much power and where all these people uh, worked and lived and died and, and had such a unique lifestyle in this place that not too many people have really seen, but really is sort of an essential part of 
um, of commerce in, in the United States and, and in Louisiana in general. It, it was this great sense of accomplishment that I had finally made it here. It, it, there definitely was a sense of calm that came over me. And I, I still feel that every time I go down and, and it, it doesn't get old. I, I can do it. I can go down there and I can always find my way into that mindset and, and to that, that mental space that, um, that just feels good to me. And the photographs not only are something that I'm doing just, you know, for the record, I feel like I, like I want to do, I want people to see these places and I want to have a photographic record of it for posterity, but the real intent, like what I'm trying to do is to not necessarily tell a story, but to communicate what it feels like to be there. And that's what I've, I've always done. It's, it's about the feeling of one place. And it's this, this river delta and the end of the river and the end of the world, as some people would call it. Yeah. One of the things that, I mean, really fascinates me about your photography that you document is just the concept of change and how you've, I mean, especially if you look at some of the photographs of the buildings in Plaquemines Parish that you've, you've done, um, you know, some of these buildings are abandoned and have long been abandoned. And, and then even thinking about the landscapes where maybe one at one point buildings did exist, right? And homes and, and people lived there and there were businesses and, and just over decades, you know, with storms and more, I guess even centuries since, since the beginning, um, it's just been a landscape of change, right? And so you're documenting it in this one time and place documenting that change. And then, you know, like you said, if you, I'm sure between the time you first went down there and the time that if you were to go down there today, it would have also changed dramatically. So can you talk a little bit about how change and time fit into your photographs, uh, specifically in documenting a place like Plaquemines Parish? Okay, well, the way I get that is um, in the many trips I've made down there, there were certain spots that I've you know, marked in my mind or, or noted and, and photographed. And so I keep going back to these same places and recreating these views. And when I do compare the photos over the years, it's very easy to see how much it changes. Um, I know that the, the common, uh, you know, thread about Louisiana's coast is that it's, it's fading away. Um, and, that's to me that's only sort of a half truth because yes it, you know we're losing coast and and the coast needs to be repaired but i have always noticed in photographing plaquemines parish and louisiana's coast in general is that while things are fading away other things are fading up into existence um if if you build something down there it's it's eventually going to sink or be washed away um, but new things will always come either in its place or in another spot, new things will spring up. Um, there's camps that I photographed that have long since disappeared, but other camps have popped up nearby. Um, I managed to photograph a lot of the older homes 
um, abandoned homes in, in Pilot Town before Katrina took them all away. They're just not there anymore. But I managed to get some of these old homes um, before they were washed away forever. So um, as I collect these photographs of things that are that soon disappear, I'm also in the process of capturing things that are in the process of being built or popping up, you know, between trips. And, and so because of that, it's, it's become kind of a never ending project. You know, there's always something new and there's always something that isn't there anymore. And that seems to be the whole story of the Louisiana coast in general. We're trying to rebuild it while it's disappearing at the same time. And um, that's just another fascination I have with it. Yeah, as we always say, there's no status quo in Louisiana because things are always changing, um, sometimes good, sometimes bad. But um, you make a, a very good point there. Um, so, Matthew, what what has the response been to your New York Times feature, um, maybe both from you know, folks from Louisiana and from outsiders that have seen you document this place that maybe they don't know so much about. So tell us about your response to the New York Times feature. Okay, well, I got a lot of emails um, after the article came out. And and believe it or not, they, they came from all over the country and even some places in Europe, and I got uh, a couple of emails from India. And um, the people that were very far away were said that they they were glad that they finally got to see what this place looked like. And so I realized that they had the same fascination that I did when I was uh, younger, that, that like, well, here this place, here is this place, but there's not much of a photographic record of it. And they were saying, thank you, because now I know what it looks like. Now I know what it, it feels like to be in this place. Um, I also got a lot of messages from older people that were born and raised on the Delta in places like Pilot Town. Um, I got several messages from people who were raised as, as children in Pilot Town and went to the school there. And, and it apparently just brought back a flood of memories um, for them. And they, they would just, you know, I get these long messages. I remember doing this and I remember doing that. So it, it was great that uh, the photos sparked all of those memories for them. And um, what else was it? Was it that you want to know about? Uh, yeah, it was just that you answered the question. You know, what was the response to the piece? Both, you know, did you hear from Louisiana people? And it sounds like you did. And but but also, you know, from from an outsider's perspective, not from Louisiana. And it's it's very interesting um, and, and not surprising, though, that you helped paint an even better picture of um, of what you maybe experienced in that library to, to kind of know more about that place, understand it a little bit more intimately. Do you get do you get that reaction on all your photographs more broadly? Um, is that just um, an emotional connection um, to something like a beautiful photograph? Yeah, um, the response really was. Um, the response that I got from from everybody was an emotional response, and and 
so because of that, I, I felt like, well, I, I did what I set out to do because this, this is kind of exactly how I wanted people to react to it. You know, I wasn't trying to be provocative or I wasn't trying to necessarily pull on anyone's heartstrings or anything like that. But I, like I said before, the, the idea is to try to capture what it feels like being in these places. And that was exactly the kind of response I got from people who saw the, the Times article. And, and so because of that, I was, I was very happy. That, and and, and that these, these responses were coming from, you know, places like Nebraska and uh, India. And I even got um, an email from a professor emeriti from New York University. And, um, and so I was very pleased with the response to it, the reader response. I love that idea of, you know, someone who was born and raised in pilot town seeing it and kind of reaching out and, and sharing their response or thoughts to all the way some someone in India, right, who had maybe read about the place and, and never really um, had a sense of what it looked like and, and being brought to that place with your photographs. So that's really powerful. So I wanted to ask Matthew, <clears throat> can you talk a little bit about your creative process and um you know, your kind of how you specialize your, your, or how would you kind of characterize your work as a photographer? Of course, you know, there's a whole range of, of different types of photography, um, whether you're focused on nature or people or even within nature, the type of photography you're doing. So tell us a little bit about your creative process as well as kind of where you see your sweet spot uh, be, as being a photographer. Okay, well, um, the process that I uh, fell into is, is a, a process that comes from um, a sort of older school group of photographers. The uh, Ansel Adams was one of the people in this group, and it's a simple process called visualization, where what you do not do is sort of like I know I know a lot of shutterbugs, and when they go out somewhere with the camera, I I see them sort of. Um, slowly stalking around like a heron, looking through the camera the whole time, and um, and then just just snapping at everything and, and hoping they can draw something out of it later. But um, the the Adams process, which is called visualization, is is that um, you don't look through the camera. You what you do is you 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 see. You look for things that affect you emotionally. And then what, what you're supposed to do is, is see the finished photograph in your mind's eye and then simply use the camera as the tool to, you know, to recreate or create or record what you see in your mind's eye. Um, I'm kind of a big stickler for composition and that's the most important thing to me in a photograph is how it's composed. It has to be done in a way that, satisfies my aesthetic need for balance or symmetry or um, sort of not necessarily putting the subject of the photograph in the bullseye, which is a, a trick that I uh, learned from Joel Myrowitz's photograph is, is that if there's any kind of action or subject, you, you don't want to put it right in the center of the photo. You, if you put it somewhere else, 
your eye is going to uh, keep moving over the photograph and you find that you can actually manipulate the viewer's eye into certain shapes and patterns by not putting the action in the bullseye. And uh, there's, there's a, a real tendency for me to, to go for minimalist landscapes by trying to use the idea of less is more. And of course, always being drawn to coastal areas or places near water. Like I have no problem with the Rocky Mountains, right? But we all sort of have a sense of where we belong. And for me, it's, it's near water. And I, when I was, when I was uh, growing up, I also started really getting into the movies of uh, Federico Fellini. And I noticed that he most always ends his movies on the beach or by water. And I don't know why he does that, but I understand. You know what I'm saying? I understand. And it, it's sort of a barrier to the subconscious is, is the only way I could describe it. And that's why I've always been attracted to these sort of minimalist coastal landscapes. I, I'm definitely in my element when I'm near water and, and I have a camera in my hand. So, Matthew, do you have any advice for, um, you know, maybe some some folks that um, want to follow, little Matthews that want to follow in your footsteps, uh, you know, advice for budding photographers or, or photo, photo journalists um, that are out there? I couldn't really speak to um, a photo journalist because they have this, this storytelling skill that... Uh, you know, I've, I've only dabbled with, there's been a few times where, uh, uh, someone has called me up and said, can you go and get a picture of this thing happening? And, and I've done it, but, but there are, uh, the true photojournalists just, they're not so much concerned with composition and things like that, but, but they know how to tell the story by giving you an image and, and no words. But, um, as far as, any photographer in general, or especially a, a landscape photographer, um, I, I would I would just say you've got to pick your thing, and to and to just keep doing it for better or for worse because that's what I have always done. And um, the the fact that I am not a particularly connected person or, or a, a person of means maybe has been a setback a few times, but I've always just stuck with it. And I've had to tell myself many times that I just have to keep doing this and not worrying about what else think anyone else thinks. And, and eventually some good is going to come out of it, sort of like the New York Times. The response I got to the New York Times article was, was it? a great reward um, for the many years I've put into doing it. So I, I would, I usually tell any photographer to think about how you're composing your photos um, to simply just keep doing it, do it because you have to, not necessarily because you're, you have this scheme to raise your profile or, or um, 
become an overnight sensation because if if you have any plan like that just sort of like when you're being a, mu- a musician is if you think i'm going to do this 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 and then i'll be successful you, you're really going to disappoint yourself i i would just say to i i tell everybody to just do it because you love it and do it because you have to and eventually people are going to pick up on it so matthew i, I do want to shift gears a little bit we've got a little bit more time left in this episode but um, one of the topics I wanted to bring up was just thinking about um, documenting places after disaster. And of course, you know, I think this is certainly true for Plaquemines Parish, and it's been true for other parts of Louisiana's coast, but there's been a rush of people, whether it's news media or others, to go and document a place after disaster. And and you right. were in Orleans Parish when Katrina hit. Um, and in the, the New York Times piece, you talk about how as a photographer, you were frustrated by a lot of the post-hurricane photography that was coming out at that time. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that frustration and how you've tried to differentiate your work um, while photogra- photographing amidst kind of these post-disaster situations? Okay. Um, I had no issue with um, the photojournalists who were documenting for the record just what was going on down here and also the uh magnitude of just how much destruction Katrina caused. But at the same time, I saw a lot of efforts being made to simply cash in on the spectacle of that. There were a lot of books that hit the shelves that were just compilations of stock and news photos of nothing but but destroyed homes and piles of garbage and um, portraits of people sitting on the steps of their ruined homes, sobbing, and and they were and they were making money out of it, and um, that really kind of got my goat, and and it especially especially so with um, the uh, world class photographer Robert Polidori, who uh, came down here um, armed to the teeth with all this top photo gear and uh, a generous paycheck from a magazine I'd rather not name because I subscribed to them for half my life. But he, he came down here and literally broke into homes and photographed people's ruined possessions. And, um, and he, did, he did even worse than that is that he, he came back down here in a year and sold a book and was selling prints of it for $25,000 a pop. And, and it, it kind of infuriated me. And I called him out on it on the internet. And a, a, I guess he must have um, read it because afterwards he mentioned in an interview that he had to retain an attorney to fend off charges of breaking and entering. So um, because of that, it, it I decided that I was not going to intrude on anyone's sense of loss. I wanted to photograph the things that were still here and still beautiful in spite of the storm. And I know at the time, in the years after Katrina, the whole post-Katrina era, a lot of um, commentators, journalists, people like that, the question that, that kept coming up is, well, if Katrina wiped this place out like this, why should we rebuild it? And I wanted the answer to that question to be my photographs. You want to know why we need to restore the coast? You want to know why we need to rebuild these places? 
look at these photographs and tell me it should not be rebuilt. This is beautiful. These places are beautiful. Living here is sustainable. We just have to have the political will to do that. If any of my photographs have inspired some sort of will in, in people to restore the coast and pursue the idea that, that coastal living here is sustainable, then I've done my job. Very, very interesting perspective on that. And like I said, as we neared the anniversary, that certainly was on a lot of folks' mind. And so um, as we close out the podcast today, do you have any new photo projects you're working on or any particular shots in Louisiana that you're looking to capture? Um, And also, please, please be sure to tell our listeners where they can find more of your work. Okay, well, uh, before I forget where, I would... Say I, I have a website that is MatthewWhiteStudio.com. That's uh, easy enough to get to, and there's a, a Tumblr blog connected to that where I post the most recent work. Um, I have another long-term project that I've been working on, almost as long as the Plaquemines project, which is based in Cameron Parish. And the reason for that is the same. I think it's a beautiful place. Uh, There's just not much of a photographic record of it. And I've been going out there since 2006. Um, I usually go there once a year. I wasn't able to go last year because of COVID and all the fears of travel. Um, But I've worked on a project surrounding Cameron Parish, which you can see at my website. And um, I really hope to have um, both of those projects, both the Plaquemines and the Cameron projects, um, published in book form with with a good university publisher or trade publisher. I I just uh, it it requires connection and backing, and that it's just not something I've uh, been particularly. Uh, lucky about, but I, I really want to get it out there just because I want to share these photos with everybody. I, um, I really think if more people saw the coast, then there wouldn't be any questions about the necessity to restore and, and preserve it and to make a living there sustainable. So Matthew, I want to thank you so much for being on. And I mean, your answer about uh, your photos being the response to why should we rebuild this place? Why should we restore the coast? I think was so powerful. So we wish you all the best in your future work and please keep us posted. We'd love to continue to share some of the, the content and highlight your work wherever we can. Before we let you go though, we do have our Delta Dispatches tradition of a fun question. So Uh, This one, I guess, is very relevant to the conversation we've had today. So I'm sure there are places that you have long wanted to photograph that you have not been able to. So if you could today pick up and go to any place in the world to photograph, um, where would that place be? Cimarron County, Oklahoma. Ooh, that's (laughs) very specific. Okay. (laughs) Um, I've been wanting to go there for a long time. it's, it's a question of having the means to get there. I mean, I've, I've budgeted it all out. I just haven't had that amount of money fall into my lap. But um, it's 
the reason is because it's it's very flat and very minimalist, just like the Louisiana coast, but it's a whole different ball game. You know, we're talking about the the heart of the Dust Bowl and um, the flat minimalist landscape. I think would make a really good contrast with um, the the. Louisiana photographs I have, and I've got it all figured out, you know, what format I'm going to shoot it in and exactly where I'm going to go. And it also uh, borders, that county alone borders four different states. Did you know that? you if, if you're in Cimarron County, Oklahoma, and you drive 30 miles in any direction, you're going to hit either New Mexico, Colorado, Kansas, or Texas. Oh, see. So, I could I could knock off five states in one trip. So, <laughs> Earn um, all your badges, right? <laughs> right, right. You know, put more little pins in the map or, or whatever it is you do. I also really need to get back to uh, Chenier Teague in Louisiana, which is not an easy place to get to. And um, the, the permissions and semantics involved in getting there, it, it can be a little difficult. And... Um, but I, uh, I really need to get back to that place because I was fortunate enough to photograph it in 2011. But since then, um, I've had some good camera upgrades and processing upgrades. And so I, I need to hit that again. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, probably someday I will. But there in Cimarron County, Oklahoma, that's where I would like to go. I like how decisive you were. That's great. Um, it usually, I would, Jock and I do this all the time, ask the fun questions, and then we're never forced to answer them because <laughs> we'd probably take way too long to think about it. Um, before you go, can you remind folks one more time of the uh, where they can find your work? Okay. The website is matthewwhitestudio.com. And uh, that's easy enough to find. And also my Tumblr is connected to that website and the, the Tumblr blog is where I post the most recent work or sometimes I will um, publish a remastered photos from the old archive, you know, or, or revisiting a photo. I, I found that a lot of my favorite photographers will go back and revisit older things and, and either reprint them or reprocess them. Yeah. Yeah, very neat. Well, you were a great guest to have on today. We learned so much about your perspective from Louisiana, but also certainly a lot more about the emotion of art and, and photographs itself. So so thank you for being with us today. Um, well, thanks for I, having me. I, I, I love doing this. I love talking about it. And I'm, I'm glad you had me on. Great, great. And, and we'll also make sure that we have all those links when we um, share the podcast every way we can. Um, I'm going to provide the Coastal Stat of the Week and Jacques, you'll close out with the Coastal Voice of the Week. So um, this Coastal Stat of the Week is very interesting. According to a recent poll by Global Strategy Group, voters are widely in agreement about how the state should address its land loss crisis, with 82% of coastal Louisiana voters supporting sediment diversions, 82%. Large-scale coastal restoration projects that would reconnect the Mississippi River to the wetlands to sustain them over time. Supporters for diversions are strong in every region and among every demographic, including 74% of voters in Plaquemines and St. Bernard parishes. More than half, 56% of voters, indicate that they would view state and local elected officials 
who support these projects more favorably, and only 7% would view, view elected officials who support these, who do not support these projects less favorably. Moreover, support for sediment diversions is incredibly robust, holding at 70% after voters are exposed to a balanced debate that includes the language actually being used by certain op- opponents of these projects. So Jacques, um, probably just some news that we didn't know and also some surprising news there as well in terms of how much folks here in coastal Louisiana not just support coastal restoration, but support reconnecting the river. Yep. And you can actually go to our website, MississippiRiverDelta.org to see the full poll results and learn more. Um, And now I have this week's Coastal Voice of the Week, which comes from Darren Lynn in Braithwaite, Louisiana. And her uh, voice is that it could be gone, which I think is a reminder of the urgency of what we're working towards. And, and, uh, you know, uh, I think it's short and sweet. And so thank you, Daryl Lynn, for sharing your voice. And a reminder, you can go to MississippiRiverDelta.org slash restore dash the dash coast um, and share yours. And we'll potentially show it, uh, ha- share it on one of these shows coming up soon. Um, and with that, again, I want to thank Matthew for being on. Um, we will be sure to link to the New York Times feature as well as to his website in this Uh, episode description. So please go and check it out. And we look forward to bringing you more um, great Delta dispatches in the weeks and months ahead. We've got some great folks lined up for September. So stay tuned. Um, And until then, we'll see y'all later, alligators.